Judges chapter 6. Continue our study in the book of Judges. Brings us to the sixth chapter, the Gideon cycle. We'll read chapter six and hear about the truth found therein. Judges chapter six, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Please give your attention to its reading. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. 
When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon, Jerob Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The year is 1999. The location about a half mile south of here, down South Park Avenue, the corner of 170th Street. The occasion... The annual spring musical for the Village Free Church Children's Choir. The production, one titled Giddy Up, Get Along, Gideon. Story of Gideon cast in a, with a Western flavor. The star of the show, yours truly. And uh, when I played this role of Gideon in this uh, spring musical, you would think that I would have come away with a good sense of Gideon's role in the history of Israel and uh, 
also whether or not he is a, a morally commendable person. But because of the way that the musical was structured, it really, its main flaw was that it really just focused on uh, the victories that Gideon wins in Judges, and, and it didn't tell about the other things. So later in life, I come to find out that uh, this wonderful hero that I had played, this cowboy uh, Gideon in this, uh, this children's musical, was really not the, the commendable guy that I had once thought he was. This is a a turning point in the book of Judges. Remember in in, in Judges 4 and 5, we've seen the the Deborah and Barak cycle. And particularly chapter 5 gives us this wonderful song of praise to God. And so we're meant to, to be hopeful that perhaps the rest of the book of Judges is going to be filled more and more with proper worship to God. Not only proper worship to God, but worship properly to the true God and not false worship. Gideon becomes that hinge figure. And we see his divided heart is really something that becomes a picture of the nation itself. There are many good things that Gideon does, but there are many bad things as well. And when we find that his divided heart gives way to his son, whose heart is wholly given to the false gods of the Canaanites. And so what do we learn from Gideon, and particularly this first chapter where we come to meet him. Well, we learn about the dangers of a divided heart. Learn about the dangers of a divided heart and why the the God of Scripture is able to demand all of our heart. So we learn about that. We also learn that the excitement of certain moments in our lives, the, the kind of emotionalism we may go through with spiritual types of experiences, it, those kinds of things will not mean anything unless it forces us to go after sin at its deepest root in our lives. But uh, to that end, we also, of course, learn and see the glorious truth of our God's delighting in mercy. Our God is a God who shows grace, who shows mercy, who forgives when we wouldn't expect him to, when we would expect just the opposite. And we also see that he is a God who has patience with those who are weak in faith. He's a God who has patience with those who are weak in faith. Keep all of those things in mind as we walk through this passage uh, together. We see that uh, the Israelites... Do evil in the sight of the Lord. It's the way these cycles begin, right? So right from the start, from chapter 5, we're hopeful that Israel maybe has turned a corner. And uh, they're, they're going to now serve the Lord with greater fervor. We've had this wonderful song of praise. All of a sudden, right from the start, our hopes are squelched. Every year, the Midianites would come and they would raid the Israelites. They would take what they have. The, the, the vision there, or the, the, the picture being painted is a swarm of locusts coming and, and taking all of their crops and taking all of their livestock. When we come to meet Gideon, what is he doing? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Normally you would thresh wheat and then you'd have the chaff and the wheat together. You'd be outside. You would throw it up into the wind so that the wind would carry the chaff away. But Gideon is doing this in hiding in a wine press because he's even afraid that if he's up on a hilltop or something that a Midianite or an Amorite is going to see him and they're going to come and just take what is his. The Israelites are hiding themselves in caves and in mountain clefts. This is a, this is a serious level of suffering and oppression. 
And when we consider that, we, we say, you know, things are really bad in Israel. But when we see what God is doing to bring it all together, we see that this is actually an expression of the kindness of God. And why? How, how could you say that? Right? The, the Midianites coming, taking all that they have, their life has been turned upside down, experiencing all of this oppression. Why is it an expression of the kindness of God? When they cry out to the Lord, and remember that crying out is not necessarily a, a humble repentance, it's really just a groaning under their pain. They're sick of the pain of oppression, and they groan under that pain. They're not returning to the Lord in repentance, simply just groaning in pain. The Lord sends this prophet, and he summarizes what God has done in redeeming them from Egypt and bringing them into this land, giving them all of this blessing. And then he says, but you have not listened to me. And that's why the Lord, time and time again, in the book of Judges, uh, gives his people over into the hands of foreign rulers. Because they stray from him. Because they rebel against him. And God brings them through all of these sufferings, trials, and oppressions in order to bring about a greater obedience and devotion to him. He want, he, what, what God is concerned with on the other side of this suffering and oppression, I want a greater obedience and devotion. Because the kind of rebellion they were engaging in, the kind of idolatry, put themselves in such a dangerous place that God knew he needed to rescue them. Now, when we apply this to our own lives, we need to be somewhat careful in the way that we think about this. We don't mean that whenever some kind of suffering comes your way, it's God's way of saying, because you did A, B, and C in your life, I directly bring this upon you so as to bring about a restoration of your soul. You need to be careful that we're not saying that in every, each and every situation. But if someone is a Christian, if someone is known as part of the people of God and they, they allow themselves to veer off the path into direct and abhorrent patterns of sin that place their soul in danger, if that person is marked with the name of God and is a child of God, isn't it true that their Heavenly Father would go to great lengths to bring them back to a place of restoration. Of course it is. That's what the Lord does because he's a heavenly father. We also say, even if we are not someone who's caught in an overt pattern of sin, we oftentimes will experience oppression, suffering, trials, and it may not be connected to anything directly that we have done. We can look back and say, what did I do that God brought this my way? But in all of the suffering through which we go, In all of the challenges in this life through which we go, God is bringing about greater obedience and devotion to him. And so uh, that is something that we know in all of the struggles and trials that we have. As we think about this for Israel, of course, they have committed gross acts of idolatry and rebellion. And what God is most concerned with is bringing them back to himself. We think of Hebrews chapter 12, where it says that our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. God is always acting for the ultimate good of His people, particularly that they would share in His righteousness. 
With that in mind, that God is working to bring his people back from their idolatry, their rebellion, their running away from him, we see how something like the oppression of the Midianites is actually an expression of his kindness. Because what is most important? Serving, knowing, loving God, having fellowship with him. Another wonderful reminder in this passage early on is the grace that comes in the place of judgment. The angel of the Lord shows up and uh, the Lord says through this unnamed prophet in the first few verses that uh, I've given you all these blessings and you have not listened to me. You've ignored me. You're running away from me. And so when the angel of the Lord comes in the very next verse, what are we expecting? We're expecting the the angel of the Lord is going to come on on a white horse in flames of fire. He's going to come and consume his people in wrath and judgment. That's what they deserve. They're, they're acting and living directly against all of the things that God has commanded them to do. But the angel of the Lord does not come to destroy. He comes and adopts a posture of peace. He comes and he sits underneath a tree. In other words, annihilation is not on the docket when the angel of the Lord comes, but rather salvation. He comes to raise up Gideon to be a deliverer, to save his people. In other words, this is the exact opposite of what Israel deserves. The exact opposite of what we should be expecting. God should come in judgment and he should come and wipe out his people. They've rebelled against him yet again. So here we see a a foreshadowing of our Savior Jesus Christ, don't we? This is the kind of God our God is. This is what he does That he gives us, by his grace, not only what we don't deserve, but he gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. We deserve condemnation. We deserve eternal damnation. He gives us salvation. He gives us eternal life. Uh, This picture is given for us in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're following the course of this world. We're enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. All of those things, you take it together, where do we deserve to be sent? We deserve to be sent to our eternal condemnation. But in the very next verse, what does it say? But God, being rich in mercy, makes us alive together with Christ. And then it says he seats us in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, the spiritual life that we have is a heavenly life. God sends us to heaven at exactly the moment that you would expect someone to be sent to hell. That's what God does. That's what his grace is. And so we have that wonderful picture painted for us with the angel of the Lord who comes and takes a position of peace rather than judgment. He says to Gideon, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And here we have two very vital lessons for our Christian life. There's a a common doubt or complaint that we see reflected in Gideon. And then uh, the kind of of foolishness with which we so much operate when we realize the holiness of God and how we've been so blind to his truth. So he says, the Lord is with you. And what does Gideon say? Oh, uh, oh, is he? There's, There's really more sarcasm in Gideon's answer when he answers the angel of the Lord than what comes through in our English translations. It's almost a sarcastic, oh, really, the Lord, the Lord is with us, right? So what does he say? Well, look around. What's going on? Midianite oppression, we're hiding in caves and in mountain clefts. 
If you look at any of our circumstances, the one thing that you will know, the one thing that you will be convinced of beyond any doubt is that God has abandoned us. Where is he? I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. I'm nervous at every step of the way. I, I have no idea if I'm going to be able to see the next day because uh, a Midianite might come upon me and just take me out. This is a temptation that we all feel. We hear the promise that the Lord is with you and immediately in our heart we say, oh, is he with, is he with me? Is he with me? Look at the circumstances of my life. Look at what I'm going through. Look at the kind of suffering I have been experiencing. Look at the kind of pain I have been going through and the kind of pain that I experience day in and day out. Look at my life and you will see that he is not there and that he has not been there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Isaiah 41, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. When we say to God that he is not with us, we are calling into question perhaps his most consistent promise given to us throughout scripture. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. It becomes God's word against ours, doesn't it? It's God's word against ours. He says, I am with you. No matter what the circumstances, I am with you. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through fire, I am with you. That's not to say that we should want trials. That's not to say that we should want tribulation or we should want suffering. But we need to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that this life, God's main concern in this life, is equipping us for the next. The only way that this life has ultimate meaning is if its meaning is in light of the next life. If this life is ultimate, if this life is the ultimate, then nothing is ultimate because we know that this world the form of this world and the form of this life are all passing away. So what is God doing with us in this life? He's preparing us for the next. He's preparing us for the next and he's molding us into that creation. We are, we are a work of his hands and he will not forsake us. God doesn't give us the answers we always crave, although the answer that I'm shaping you and forming you for the next life, that, that ought to be good enough. But he's not going to always give us the answers that we crave. He's not always going to tell us the way that he's weaving all the circumstances of our lives together. But he says, I am with you. I am with you. But while that promise ought to be enough, we see that in the blindness of our hearts and the foolishness of our hearts, uh, we, we live with this this realization that we want God to prove that he is with us. And then uh, human beings, whenever they're caught in the presence of God, realize they're in the presence of God, what do they do? They run in fear. And so Gideon, all of a sudden, he's saying, uh, sort of sarcastically, the Lord isn't with us. Look at the circumstances here. Look at what's going on. And then he realizes the angel of the Lord is really the Lord himself. As scholars say, this is most likely the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity. And um, Gideon says, all of a sudden realizes that he has seen the Lord. And what does he do? He's filled with fear. He's, he's cowering with fear. How blind 
so many of us are to the ultimate realities like Gideon is here. We, we accuse God of being absent and then we would run from him in fear. See, uh, many modern types would throw their arm around Gideon here and say, Gideon, you don't need to worry. It, God's fine. God's fine. He's, it's fine that you're in his presence. You don't need to worry about it. And how misled our modern sensibilities can be. Sadly, much of what passes today for worship is, is, is cavalier nothingness. It, it has so, such little to do with the biblical God. Our God, as we've seen in Judges, our God is ferocious. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is infinitely holy. There is nothing that is amazing about grace if there is nothing fearful about holiness. If approaching God is no big deal, if standing in his presence is no big thing for his creatures, then there's nothing amazing about grace. That's why we need to remember the holiness of God. We see then, too, that the angel of the Lord is working with Gideon, speaking with him, and we have this wonderful account of the smashing of the idols to the Canaanite gods. But it's here that we begin to see a a bit of the divided heart of Gideon. A heart that is caught between trying to serve the Lord, but has a Canaanite thread woven into it. He prepares this elaborate meal for the angel of the Lord. Would have taken several hours. He goes and prepares prepares a goat, brings him that meal. We see the angel of the Lord says, put it on a rock. Uh, It's consumed, so in some sense the Lord accepts that offering, which is uh, amazing enough. Then Gideon names that altar, the Lord is peace, Yahweh Shalom. He is the God who makes peace. Why? Why does he make peace? Why is he a God who makes peace? Because he alone has the authority to forgive sin. And so there's this, this sacrifice that Gideon gives that the Lord accepts. And between the Lord and Gideon, there is a peace that is created. But there's this further issue of Gideon's people being engaged in this deep idolatry. Gideon's father's house is the site of two monuments to false gods. One to Baal and one to Asherah, a Canaanite duo, male and female god and goddess, signifying Uh, Authority over creation and the weather and also uh, fertility. And so what the Lord commands Gideon to do is something that shows the absolute sovereignty and power of God over these false gods. Take your father's choicest bull. Go get him. Use him to tear down Baal's altar and also the Asherah pole. The name Gideon actually means hacker. So you see he's, he's hacking down this, uh, these idols to the false god, the false altar, and this pole. Use that bull to tear down these idols to the false god, and then take that bull that is himself a, a symbol of the strength of the true god over and against these false gods, and sacrifice that bull, that exact one. Sacrifice it on the altar that I will instruct you. It's... A clear, clear sign, a picture being painted that to come through to show us that the God of Israel is the God of all. That he, he has no competition. There is no one that exists besides him. He is God alone. But sadly, Gideon does this under the cover 
of nightfall. He's scared about what may happen if everyone sees him doing it. As everyone figures out that he's done this, his father, strangely enough, comes to his defense. But he says something, uh, he says something very interesting and very useful. He says, if Baal is a true God, then let him defend himself. In the context of Judges, this is a perfectly reasonable thing to say. What is it that God has been doing in Judges? He's been toppling kings and kingdoms. He's been going out before his people into battle. He has been winning the battles for his people. He does it himself because he is God alone. A wonderful argument given from his, uh, from his father. The pictures, though, for, from Gideon and for our life are these. Total destruction and total devotion. The false gods of Canaan don't mind existing along other gods. The same thing is true in our lives. The idols that we create don't mind existing alongside other idols because we construct them in our own minds, in our own hearts, the things that we decide to serve, the things that we decide to love the most. Those idols, they don't exist, they don't mind existing alongside other gods. But the God of Scripture is God alone. He will not share his place of authority with anyone He will not share that place in a human heart that is to be devoted to him and to him alone. He will not share that with anyone. He created us and he created us for himself and he will have his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so what we learn here is the danger of a divided heart. As we see it in Gideon, we see the makings of it, we're going to see it throughout his life. We see that he tears down these idols outwardly, but what does he do? He does not go to the root of his sin, to the root of his problem, because later in his life, he's going to create an idol. He's going to worship false gods. His family is going to be an absolute disaster. He shows us his divided heart, and we see the danger of a divided heart. Now, we all have divided hearts in some sense, don't we? All of us. Uh, cannot say that our hearts are completely pure and completely devoted to the one true God. But to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he has taken up residence in our hearts. Ephesians 3, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And that our heart, our inner life, the, the whole of our inner life belongs to Christ. It's his dominion. It's part of his kingdom. It's his property. He is our Lord, and it belongs to him. And thus, what is left for us to do in our lives in Christ, our lives seeking to honor God, the the, the work that is left for us to do is like the work of Gideon, tearing down false altars and idolatrous icons. And unlike Gideon, it should be our desire to do it in the daytime. In broad daylight, we ought to make our desire to honor God, our work of seeking to live for Him, we ought to make it very obvious that that is what we are doing in our lives. We are to tear down our idols and to go to the root of them by God's help and by His grace so that we may say, like it says in Psalm 86, I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. What is true worship? but loving God with all of your heart. Loving God with all of your heart. Now again, 
Are we ever going to experience an absolutely pure heart in this life? No. But we see that held up for us as something to which the Lord calls us and something which he is fashioning us to do in eternity. We will worship God with all of our hearts someday. And so each and every day, we are to make that something for which we strive by his help. We also see finally in closing this, uh, this episode of the fleecing of Gideon, as some people call it. It's really about Gideon's imperfect faith and our patient Heavenly Father. Gideon's imperfect faith and our patient Heavenly Father. Uh, people ask, it is, what's going on here? Is Gideon sinning by asking for these repeated signs from God? And there, do, there does seem to be some links here that clue us in that, that what Gideon is asking for is really something that comes from his weak faith. Right? The, 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 the verbal links here between Gideon and what Israel does in Exodus 17 where they are testing the Lord. They, they put him to the test because they are weak in faith. There are some similarities between what Gideon is doing here and what happens in Exodus 17 and then is explained for us in Psalm 95. But the amazing thing is that God gives Gideon the assurance that he craves. He gives Gideon the assurance that he asks for. These signs basically, what do they say? They say that God will go to great lengths to deliver his people. The second sign is particularly that way because it's of the nature of wool and fleece to absorb moisture. So the second sign that Gideon asks for is that let the dew around the fleece be wet, but let the fleece itself be dry. In other words, this God is a God who will even work against the laws of nature or suspend the laws of nature, better said, in order to accomplish his purposes. He will do miraculous things. He may be a God who one day raises the dead, for instance. And so Gideon has this assurance that God is with him and that God will give him both his presence and his power, and the victory that he has promised. Gideon, Gideon's weakness in faith ought to remind us that we are often weak in faith. It ought to remind us also that God accommodates himself to our weakness by giving us signs like water and bread and wine. We are weak in faith and our foes are strong, but God is a God for the weak. God is a God who is our strength. He's a patient father. He's not brutal towards his children. And so he knows that we have a tendency to want to trust our senses, to want to trust our eyes and our hands. And we want these assurances that he is real. And he says, let me give you these wonderful signs, water and bread and wine, the sacraments, so that you may know that as surely as you see the water, as surely as you taste the bread, as surely as you take the cup and drink it, that is how sure you can be that your sins are forgiven in Christ. Our faith is weak and our foes may be strong, but God is our strength. What he wants is a humble faith that he can strengthen by his word and spirit. That's what God wants. A humble faith that he can strengthen by his word and spirit. He wants you to abandon your trust in yourself so that he can be your strength. Gideon here, he reminds you a lot of David, doesn't he? 
He is the weakest in his family. He's the one that outwardly no one would have picked him to be the king. But the Lord, what? The Lord looks upon the heart. In the inner life, what God wants to find is a humble faith, a dependency upon him, and a desire to be strengthened by his word and his spirit. Come to him with that humble faith. Watch the Lord turn your weak faith into healthy fruit for his kingdom. Let him be your all. Let him be your vision, your wisdom, your strength, your inheritance, your battle shield, your sword for the fight. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We give you all of the thanks for this word. And we pray that it would take root in our hearts, uh, that you would continue your work in us, and that you would, by your spirit, bring us more and more uh, to a place where our hearts are, are not divided, but given wholly unto you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.